And we saw in that video some common hard questions, questions that are continually asked in our culture and sometimes quietly in our churches as well. There are believers that wrestle with uh, hard questions of the faith. This is not uncommon. It goes back through time, but especially as we live in a world that is hostile and growing increasingly more hostile to Christianity, other people may ask you hard questions. They may ridicule your faith. They may uh, claim that you don't have scientific answers. You don't have good and strong answers just because you, maybe they claim you believe in Jesus as a leap of faith without any kind of undergirding or anchor in that. Again, that kind of accusation is not new and our faith being challenged is not new. So the Bible uh, approaches that head on and gives us insight and advice into how to defend our faith and how to answer those who challenge our faith. If you have your Bible, return with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick up at verse 13, where we left off last time. Uh, that two weeks ago, when we were wrapping up the section that came before this, we heard Peter say to believers in exile and believers under persecution, he said, seek peace and do good, for the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He wants believers to know that their conduct in the culture matters. And based on that conduct, it should be so in our culture that when, when believers behave like Christians, people have nothing to say against them. That things have to be fabricated or contrived to speak against Christians who are actually living out their faith. But as the culture becomes more hostile toward Christianity, we also need to know how to respond to people that challenge our faith. What should we say And how do we stand up for our faith? Look at verse 13 as Peter approaches this question. He says, who then will harm you if you're devoted to doing what is good? Now let me pause there right right away. Peter doesn't mean that no Christian will ever be persecuted or harmed. What he means is, if you are devoted to doing the good things of God, people have to fabricate reasons to persecute you or to harm you. It may very well happen. In fact, uh, the Bible says if you are devoted to Christ, you will be persecuted. But Peter's point is that you will be persecuted against what's right. Not because you've done anything wrong, but because you are good and they have to fabricate things against you. But then he says also there's a bigger picture in this, that when you suffer for Christ, you are suffering for righteousness. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Your conduct should be such that those who try to disparage you, they themselves will be put to shame because perhaps others will rise up and say, they did nothing wrong. Why why are you disparaging their faith? But even so, your faith may be challenged. And Peter wants to head on, give you an opportunity to understand how you can defend your faith in Christ and what matters most in doing that. Now, Peter's laid the foundation for this previously, and he brings up two important points he has established. He brings these up right away again. And we have to keep these in the back of our minds because this is, the, this is the anchor for his whole letter as we experience hostility against Christianity in our culture. 
Uh, the first thing is our living hope. Remember, he brings that up very, right away in the first chapter. We have a living hope in Christ. We, our eternal life is in Christ. Yes, we are in this world. Yes, we live now in this world. But because we are in Christ, we have a living hope. That's our hope. Our hope is always in Christ. It's really another way of talking about our salvation and our resurrection in Christ. But he likes that phrase because it puts the mindset on the things above, the mindset on the things of Christ, and not on the suffering and the struggle of this world. Uh, the second thing he repeats frequently is that we should not be afraid or intimidated by anything that people do. Do not be afraid of people. Do not be afraid of the government. Why? Because of our living hope. Because we are attached to Christ. Because our hope is in heaven. Our citizenship is with him. We have no reason to be afraid. And when you're in a challenging conversation, you have no reason to be intimidated by anyone else who would challenge your faith, Peter says. In fact, you'll recall he says, there's only one that we should fear. Who is that? God. We should fear God because as believers in Christ, we represent him. He will hold us accountable for our conduct, for our message, for our behavior, for our methods in this world. So we fear God, but we don't fear people and should not be intimidated by those who challenge our faith. With that in mind, Peter says that we should always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for your reason for the hope that is in you. Always, all the time, for anyone, anywhere, you and I should be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in us. Uh, the pivotal term there, of course, is the word defense. Uh, it comes from a Greek word that refers to a legal defense. First of all, in a court of law, that is, you're standing before the court and you give a defense for your behavior and for what you believe. But in the ancient world, as with the way we think today, it also applied to conversations. And that's how Peter applies it here. Anywhere, anytime, anyone asks you to give a reason for the hope that's in you, you should be ready to give a defense. Uh, that word translated defense gives us our term apologetics in the Christian term, in the Christian church. It, it refers to uh, being prepared to defend the faith, to answer hard questions. Right now in our Disciple Life ministry on Wednesday nights, we have a class for ladies called Mama Bear Apologetics. Uh, but it's not just for moms, it's for all ladies who interact with kids in the church or in culture who have committed themselves to helping kids grow in Christ and families grow their kids in Christ. That study is about answering challenging questions, learning the groundwork for apologetics, for defending the faith, learning how to actually answer questions, and learning how to be proactive in our, in our relationships with people and anticipate questions people might have as well. As long as we are living in this world, we are called upon by God to answer the questions and defend the faith anytime, anywhere, with anyone. We should be ready, Peter says. We should be ready. Do you feel ready? If someone asks you a difficult question, why are there so many religions? If Jesus is the only way, why are there so many religions? Isn't, isn't truth really relative in the first place? I mean, I have my truth, you have your truth. Who's to say whose truth is the truth? Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? If God is good, why is there so much evil and suffering? 
in the world? Why do we experience that? When people ask you questions like that or any other hard questions, do you feel intimidated? Do you feel pressed back? Or do you feel ready to give a defense for the hope that you have in Christ? Anytime, anywhere, any conversation. Another way to put it, and this is what we mean by apologetics, you know what you believe. If I ask any number of you who are Christians in this room, or if I called those of you at home and said, what do you believe as a Christian? You'd be able to answer at least some fundamental things. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. This is what we believe. Apologetics asks you to be ready to answer why you believe it. And that's Peter's point here. You know what you believe, but if you're challenged, can you answer why you believe that in the first place? Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God instead of the Book of Mormon, instead of the Koran, instead of the Bhagavad Gita? Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Why do you believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, God's own Son, uh, risen from the grave? Why do you believe that instead of that Muhammad was the last and final prophet? Why do you believe in Jesus? I know that you do, I know what you believe, but do you know why you believe it? And if needed, could you explain it? We can't take for granted anymore in our culture, and in truth we shouldn't have for a long time now, that people actually know why Christians believe what they believe, let alone what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. The challenge is to be ready anytime, anywhere, not for a confrontation, but for a conversation to explain why you believe what you believe. Let's go back to the text for a minute. Peter says that you and I should be ready anytime, anywhere with anyone to have that conversation, uh, to give the reason for the hope that we have, and that, that our response should have certain characteristics. And this is what he unpacks for the first century believers, as does God for us through Peter this morning. There are certain characteristics that your response should always have. The first one is that it should be a ready response. A ready response. You should be prepared at any time, anywhere, if anyone asks. You to explain the why behind your what. You should be ready, Peter says. Now, we, we approach readiness in a variety of ways. And, and readiness... Study is, is one example of getting ready, and I advocate that. I just mentioned the Disciple Life course. Take the course. Get ready. Studying is a good way to get ready. Study the Bible. Read other books. Listen to Christians who are good at defending the faith. Frank Turek is one. Look up videos by Frank Turek. Cross-examined ministry. Great resource. But you'll notice Peter does not say that your readiness hinges on how much you study. It doesn't say, it doesn't matter to study, but it does, it does. But we tend to lean in that direction. We tend to go to the YouTube videos. We tend to go to the conferences. We tend to think, if I absorb all the arguments in favor of creation against evolution, I am ready to defend creation and ready to defend my faith. But here's the problem. That's not what Peter says. Because there is another part of being ready that matters more than your knowledge of facts and of evidence. It's your relationship with Christ. Your relationship with Christ. Peter says, this is your point of readiness. Regard Christ the Lord as holy, 
Then you'll be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that, uh, hope that you have. Regard Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Uh, the term translated regard could be translated set apart or sanctified. Remember, Peter's point is don't be afraid, don't be intimidated. Instead, set apart Christ, intentionally devote yourself to Christ your Lord. And know that every conversation you are in is a conversation your Lord has led you into. Every single day, every single moment, you commit in your relationship to Christ to follow Him as your Lord. See, any conversation you have about Christ and about your faith issues from your relationship with Christ first. Your knowledge is important. You want to get it right. But here's the thing. It's okay occasionally to say to someone, I don't know, but I'll find out. As long as your relationship with Christ is healthy because that relationship with Christ is what draw them, drew them to you in the first place. And your commitment, your submission to the Lordship of Christ is what keeps you solid in that conversation. It reminds you, this is not an accidental conversation. I have no reason to be afraid. I have no reason to be intimidated. Christ is my Lord and I have devoted myself to Him. I have set Him apart in my life as my Lord. Now the contrast to that would be, I'm in charge of this conversation. I've got to know everything there is to know. Well, what just happened? Well, you just made yourself Lord of the conversation. So Peter says, first, a ready response begins with your relationship with Christ. Your walk with Christ. Get up every day. Surrender yourself to your Lord and Savior. Let Him lead you into conversations, as cha challenging though they may be. Lead you into those conversations because He is your Lord. He knows who needs Christ. He knows who needs answers. He knows who needs a faithful Christian to step up and to step out and to be available for him along the way. No fear, no intimidation. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ and you have sanctified him, set him apart in your heart to follow Christ. If you enter into a conversation and you're struggling for answers and, and what springs to mind is, I don't know enough to answer this. I want to offer this. Think about it. You may not have a knowledge problem at all. You might have a relationship problem with Christ. Uh, so before you enter into a conversation, again, study, that's a good thing, but remember, your readiness really begins in your relationship with Christ because at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to answer everything. I mean, we're, we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. But people should know we serve Christ as Lord. And we won't walk that back. We won't waver in that truth. And that's what prepares you for those challenging conversations. So first, your response should be a ready response. Second, it should be a reasoned response. A reasoned response. The Christian faith is reasonable. It's not a leap of faith. You didn't set aside science or logic when you came to Christ. In fact, the Christian faith is the logical conclusion of all the evidence. It makes the most sense. So your faith, your, your response should be a reasoned response. Peter says, be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope 
that is in you, for a reason for the hope that is in you. The term translated reason means an account, an explanation, even a narrative. Put it this way, it's like someone says to you, how did you come to the conclusion that Christ was the only way to be saved? That's what Peter's talking about. Your faith may be solid, and you may say the Bible says so, but what if someone says to you, well, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you reason that out? What, what drew you to that understanding? And also, that's a good question, by the way, to ask other people. Ask an atheist that one time. He knew I was a pastor. He knew I was teaching the Bible. He said, well, I'm an atheist. And I, I said, well, okay, thank you for letting me know. My question is, how did you come to that conclusion? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, how did you, how did you decide that was the most reasonable conclusion for what you experience in this world? It's a good question. And you and I should be able to answer it from the standpoint of being a follower of Christ. Be ready to give the account, the narrative, the conclusion of why you came to faith. And that's the other thing Peter, Peter says. Notice this. He doesn't say, be ready to win an argument. Be ready to give all the evidence. He says, be ready to give the account for the hope that you have in you. Believer in Christ. If someone asks you, how did you reach the conclusion, you personally, to have faith in Jesus Christ, the living hope that you have in Christ, how did you come to that conclusion? You and I, we should be able to answer that. We should be able to answer that. Any evidence we give should connect with that. Because listen, the purpose of apologetics, the purpose of answering the why question along with the what is not so you can win an argument, it's so you can share the gospel. So many people are so close to coming to Christ, they're just looking for a Christian who's willing to answer the challenges, who's not intimidated and not afraid and willing to enter into a conversation, not a confrontation, not a presentation, but a conversation in which they can say to you, how did you come to that conclusion that Christ and Christ alone is the Savior of the world? The hope that you have, that living hope, I, I want to know about that. I want to know how you came to that conclusion. Uh, in 2010, we started our worldview conferences here at First Baptist Church, which we've taken a break from, but we will return to. I get asked that question a lot. Yes, we'll return to those. The foundation for those conferences is to invite in a Christian apologist or a Christ, uh, somebody who is called of God to defend a Christian worldview, and we host a Saturday conference. And part of that is... They ask and answer, uh, you ask, they answer questions. The very first one we had was with Michael Lacona. Any of you guys remember Michael Lacona? Uh, Dr. Lacona at the time was the Christian apologist for the North American Mission Board. Now he teaches at Houston Baptist University and has his apologetics ministry. He's an expert in defending the New Testament and the resurrection of Christ. And in the Q&A that we had right in here, and there was a lot of people in here, uh, someone asked Dr. Lacona, how would you, if someone asked you to defend creation against evolution, how would you do that? And here's what he said. He said, I wouldn't do that. And he said, the reason is, a lot of people use those kinds of questions as a smokescreen to get away from the real issue, Jesus Christ. And he'll tell, he said, I'll tell people, I'll talk to you about that. I have no problem talking with you about that. But first, let's talk about Jesus. Because that's what matters most. 
Let me tell you how I concluded, how I came to faith in Christ, who led me to Christ. Let me tell you my story, my narrative. Then we'll talk about those other things because it's only in that context those things really make sense. There's a pastor named Mark Clark. I'm not making that up. That's his name. Uh, pastor Clark says that he grew up in an atheist household. And they were diehard atheists because atheism supported their immoral lifestyle. Uh, they were addicted to drugs and selling drugs in and out of his house when he was a kid. He said his parents and others participate, participated in prostitution right inside the home and on the streets. He gives a long laundry list of things his family was doing, all because they claimed to be atheists. So he was raised in that environment. But at eight years old, a friend invited him to a church camp. And he was fascinated by what they said about God. He'd never heard it anywhere else. He was fascinated by it, so much so, he went back every summer to this church camp. So he said, I had this back and forth. One week out of the summer, I would go and I would hear about God and I would have these questions and they would answer those questions. Then the rest of the year, I lived in this household that claimed to be atheists. But he said, the more I listened to the people about God, the more I had questions, the more I wanted understanding of what was true and what was right. Then something extraordinary happened. When he was 17 years old, going to high school, he bumped in to an old friend of his. This old friend of his was his drug supplier, and I left out the part uh, where Clark himself was addicted to drugs. He started taking drugs when he was 8 years old. And by the time he was nine years old, he was dealing in drugs. So at 17, he bumps into his supplier, and his supplier in the high school, 17 years old, has now come to faith in Christ. And Clark said he could see the change over this young man named Chris. He was blown away by how different Chris was. And he said, I need to understand what has happened to you. I want to know more about this. So Chris challenged him, first of all, to read the Bible. Go read the Bible. And then they would interact and he would answer questions and he would do his best to help Clark understand these deeper issues. By the end of that year, Mark Clark himself had come to faith in Jesus Christ. He wrestled, he said, I wrestled with the existence of God. I wrestled with evil and suffering. I wrestled with the reliability of the Bible. I wrestled with the doctrine of heaven and the doctrine of hell. But the more I explored, the more I saw the philosophical soundness of Christianity and that same year I met Chris, I gave my life to Jesus Christ and began a journey of total transformation. The Bible itself was the catalyst for this. So he said, I spent two years reading the Bible. Let me ask, I don't want to pull us here, but how many of you have ever read only the Bible for two years? How many of you read the Bible this week? Well, Clark said he read the Bible for two years. And he said, I felt set free from all the shame, the guilt, the powerlessness that I was invested in growing up. And he said, I was confident that others would find that faith too. And he said, now people often ask me where my passion for defending Christianity comes from. I was a longtime doubter myself. And I delight in showing other doubters that Christianity is historically verifiable, philosophically compelling, consistent with science, and answers all of your deepest questions. What's he talking about? Let me tell you the hope in me. Let me tell you how I came to the conclusion. Let me tell you my story of how I reached this point of trusting Christ. And you can too.
Not everyone you encounter will need that kind of question answered. But if you're ready, God has somebody in a conversation with you ready for you to talk to them. So your response and my response should be a ready response. It should be a reasoned response. And then last, it should be a righteous response. A righteous response. Now, we don't mean by this that you need to be perfect in every way. In fact, your righteousness is in Christ. Peter agrees with that. We are sinners saved by grace. But as he's been saying, your conduct and your behavior and your attitude should reflect Christ. There should not be an accusation against the Christian. If anything, the Christian's attitudes and behavior should draw people to the Christian to ask those hard questions and to find out what this hope in them is all about. So Peter unpacks it just a little bit and he gives three examples that are relevant to his, to his letter, his conversation, three attitudes, that is, that should reflect your response because they show your righteousness, your walk with Christ. The first one is your attitude toward other people, gentleness. The word translated gentleness can mean meekness. It doesn't mean weakness, but meekness in the Bible is controlled power. It's a decision you make to treat people in a manner worthy of Christ, to treat people with tact, with gentleness, with care. Uh, it's the decision you make not to just argue with people and pummel people with the gospel. It's the decision you make to be patient and to talk with them. Your, 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 your attitude toward other people who need those questions answered is to sit down, to lovingly listen, and gently answer, Peter says. Then he says you have an attitude toward God. Gentleness and reverence. Some Bibles translate the word reverence as respect. That implies it goes toward people, but this word is your attitude toward God. Uh, because it speaks specifically of fear. And he's already told us not to fear any people, not to be intimidated. But he has also said we fear only God. We are accountable to God for how we lead that conversation. So every conversation in which you've set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, in which you've been asked about the hope that you have in you is that holy moment, that moment of reverence, that moment when God shows up, that moment when God leads you in that conversation. We respect that with reverence, with worship of our God, because we know He has put us in that conversation and in that situation. Then the third attitude is, is your own attitude toward yourself. A clear conscience, Peter calls it. A term clear is literally good or morally good. You have moral clarity. That is to say, when you're in a conversation, you know God has nothing against you. You have lived in the conduct called of Christ that has led you to that moment. You know that that person isn't going to suddenly raise something up in the conversation. Why should I listen to you? Why should I listen to you? Because of the way you behave, because of the way you talk, there's no way I'm going to be a Christian. If you have surrendered to Christ as Lord, set Him apart in your hearts, if, if you are ready to tell your story, then your conduct should show that. You should live for Christ day by day. There should be nothing they can call out against you. You have a clear conscience, moral clarity, that says, I know what I'm about. 
And this is why I'm here. Does that mean you have to be perfect? No. Sometimes you just got to be prayed up. If God shows you anything to confess, confess that to him and be ready for God to use you in that kind of conversation. Our response should be a righteous response, a response that reflects our relationship with Christ. We're not there to argue with people. We're there to help people come to faith in Christ. And you say, well, Pastor Bob, what if someone's argumentative toward me? What if they're ridicule me? What if they are anything but gentle or kind toward me? Well, the thing is, that doesn't change God's dictates for us. We are still to honor Christ in that conversation. We are still to be ready to give a defense, to stand firm in our faith. We are still to live for Christ unintimidated and without fear in that situation. As we wrap up this morning, I want to offer a couple of, of reasons for the hope that we have. Reasons that you can take into that conversation if you should have one. And we saw these in the video. These are, these are common questions. And one of the big ones is evil and suffering. I'm not going to try to give the whole, the whole walk, the whole talk, the whole conversation, walk us through chapters of a Lee Strobel book or something like that. Now let's be a little more specific than that. Because a lot of people say, and you might have trouble with it too, if God exists, that's the big one, if he exists at all, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And if God exists and he is a good God, as Christians say, why does he permit evil and suffering to continue in the world? Now, loaded into that question is an assumption, isn't there? It's the assumption that when someone asks that question, you and that person will agree on what you mean by evil and suffering. Let that soak in just a minute. Where did we get the notion? How did we learn to define what's evil and what's good in the first place? Where did we get that idea, if not from a benevolent, good God, who defines what is good in this world? In fact, the question we should be asking is, if there's no God, why is there any good at all? Why is anything good? Why are any people good at all? Why are Christians good? Why is anybody good if there is no God? And how do we even know what goodness is if there is no God? Well, the hope that I have, my conclusion is, the Bible gives the best explanation for that. The opening chapters of the Bible, in fact, tell us that a good and benevolent God created and designed this world to be good and gave human beings the best gift he could give them. It's called choice, free will. And they use that gift to choose against him, and as a result of that, we have sin. Evil in the world is a result of our rebellion against God. And suddenly we realize the Bible's right in its depiction. And you're right in your account of the truth. And that's the second thing I want to mention. The, the, the video ended with, with that phrase, everything's relative. This is the big one in our conversations today. Everything's relative. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Why do I care? Why do I care? You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. Why are Christians out there telling people, just let me be me? You know, if there, there are 38,000 genders, why not? I'm not making light of it. It sounds like I am. But what it points to is a fundamental problem 
we all have, and that's with truth. Truth. Now, if your friend says to you, well, everything's relative, right? Everything's relative. There's no such thing as absolute truth at all. I have my truth, you have your truth. You might bring up a couple of things. One of those is, if everything is true, then nothing's true. Which begs the question, why are we even talking about truth if there's no such thing as truth? Not only overcomplicate it, but look at it this way. If somebody says to you, everything is relative, you know what they've just done? They've made a truth claim. Everything is absolute is a truth claim. Excuse, not absolute is a truth claim. In other words, they're counting on truth being truth to say there's no truth. But you and I, when we come to Christ, what we acknowledge is there is not only truth, truth is a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, Jesus is truth, and the truth is in Jesus. Your friend needs to hear the truth. There's a lot of good things you could think about, a lot of good things you could pray about, a lot of ways you could be ready to make those responses, but start here, your relationship with Christ. Have you set apart Christ as Lord in your life? Have you done that? Do you wake up every day and say, Jesus, you are my Lord. Whatever conversation, relationship you lead me in, I have no fear, I have no intimidation. I am ready to do what you want me to do. Is that you? Are you ready for that? Maybe that's your starting point this morning. Maybe your starting point is surrendering once again to him, to Christ. And saying, Jesus, forgive me. I've been acting like I'm the Lord of my life. And today I know, I, rem, I commit again to this truth. You are the Lord of my life. And I follow Christ and Christ alone. It could be in your, you're in this room today or you're at home. Maybe you never actually trusted Christ as your Savior. You've been looking for that hope, looking for that truth, having those questions. Well, this is your starting point. I'm not going to pretend to answer every question. Nobody in this room will either right off the bat. The one thing you need to know is that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and you need Christ. That's the problem. That's the problem. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, in this room here or at home, God, we know your word is truth. Help us, God, to be ready to say why we know that. We know that you are the Savior, that Christ is our Savior. Help us to be ready to know and to say why. That is true. But God, most of all, in this room and at home, I pray for believers in Christ that today we would say to you again, God, we, we submit completely to you. No, we will not be intimidated. We will not be afraid. We will serve Christ and Christ alone in our hearts and in this world. I pray for those who would make a fresh commitment to Christ today. I pray for those, God, who would say, I want to be ready in this conversation, I pray for those conversations, God, right in front of us. You've called some to mind, even now, Father, people that we want to be able to talk to. Help us to do that, Father. Help us to faithfully, gently, lovingly answer the questions that people have. And God, I pray for this time of response. If there's any decision 
we need to make today, Father. You would call us to Christ, call us to membership in the church, call us, God, to surrender our lives to Jesus, if that's your desire today. That's what you're calling us to do. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.